Good morning. Our scripture reading is Romans 11, 11 through 24. If you'll join me. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is natural, for what is by nature an o- a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the very word of God. We have this curious expression that we use sometimes when we are uh, in a conversation with somebody who's telling us about something important they really want us to remember. Uh, Maybe you're talking to a spouse or to a employer or to a coworker, or maybe even to a just, just to a good friend. And the person is telling you something that's very important to them that they do not want you to forget. And you sense that. And so you look at them and you say, noted, noted. It's a strange expression. Um, I hear it from time to time, and I thought about that expression when I read this passage and as I studied this passage, because Paul wants us to note something. He wants us to remember something, not just cognitively, not just a fact. He wants us to live our lives with this reality in mind. When you say noted, hopefully you are not just getting the conversation to the end point, but you are truly making note and applying to your life that which is important. Uh, This week, uh, my brother Derek over here asked me to do something. And I didn't say noted, but I told him I'd do it. 
and I forgot. Thankfully, he has access to my subconscious memory. It's called Asana. Such a great app. And uh, he put that note into my task list. And the next day, it was done. Noted. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us as he has now come to the end of rehearsing Israel's great story. When you think through the entirety of the Old Testament and the climax of the story with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, there are some things that you ought to say, Christian, noted. You ought to live your life in the reality of some very important truths about God and who he is that should make tangible difference in your life. This morning, from the text that Hunter read to us, I'm thinking of three realities, three truths, three um, attributes of God that you should note. They are the providence of God, the severity of God, and the kindness of God. The providence of God the severity of God, the kindness of God. So let's begin this morning with the providence of God revealed in Israel's story, in the story of salvation. Now let's get a definition first. Our catechism teaches question number 12, cycle one, if you're following along tells us that the providence of God is, catechism students, you can help me, his completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing every creature and every action. That truth, that doctrine, is important, critical to the Christian faith. It is, at the same time, perplexing and comforting. It is disturbing and settling all at once. I want you to see the paradoxical providence of God right here in the passage before us. In verse 11, Paul takes up another question that one might be asking as he has rehearsed Israel's story. Again, the the story of Israel is the Old Testament. In verse 1, of chapter 11, the question that Paul addressed was, has God rejected his people? And the answer was, absolutely not. Paul offered himself as yet another example of how God throughout Israel's story has kept for himself a remnant chosen by grace. But even while the elect in Israel were preserved by God, Paul says in verse 7, the rest were hardened. Make no mistake, Hardened also by God, by God's providence. So at the climax of Israel's story, God sent his own son, the promised Messiah. The moment had come when God would do what he had promised to do all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The long-awaited seed of the woman had come to deliver the bruise to the old serpent's head. But how did Israel respond? Overwhelmingly, the nation 
rejected their own Savior. Verse 7 says that they failed to obtain what they were seeking, namely the life that their own law, their Torah, had promised to them. Paul said back in Romans 9, 31, that Israel did not succeed in reaching that law. And then he says, why? Why did they not succeed? And he says, because they did not pursue it by faith. In other words, Paul said, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it was predicted by Israel's own prophets. So Israel, in rejecting their own Messiah, is culpable for that crime, for that sin. But take note of this. Take note of this, Christian. The nation's stumbling was not just predicted. It was also providential. That's the whole point, by the way, of prophecy in the first place. God not only declares that something will happen, God also ensures that it will happen. By his providence. And that's the reason why the question in verse 11 can even be asked in the first place. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Notice the words in order that. Those words assume the providence of God. Was God's purpose in seeing to it, in governing the fact that Israel would reject their own Messiah, was God's purpose in it that they might fall? Given the providence of God, we would expect the answer would have to be yes. But notice, for the tenth and final time in Romans, Paul uses the emphatic negation, by no means, no way. You see, even though Israel's stumble was predicted and was providential, God's purpose all along was not destructive. God's purpose all along was redemptive. It's paradoxical to be sure. But I want you to see it's also quite demonstrable. We can prove this. Look at, again, keep reading in verse 11. And you'll see that Paul insists that we see the providence, the sovereignty of God We should see it always in a redemptive light. When God's providence is evident, God's saving redemptive purpose is also evident. Far from Israel's unbelief being a facet of their final judgment, it is rather, he says, a means by which salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now let me put this to you bluntly. You and I, mostly, if not entirely in this room, Gentile Christians, have come into salvation through Israel's stumbling, through Israel's trespass. And the trespass that Paul is referring to is their unbelief, their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. It's no wonder, it's no use wondering if God could or should have brought you and me into salvation some other way? It's not that such questions can never be asked. It's just that if you ask a question like that, you're missing the larger and more important point. The point is that this is how God has done it, and Gentile Christians should take note. 
Israel's rejection of their own Messiah is not just something that happened at the same time as the Gentile reception of Messiah. Israel's rejection of Messiah is the God-ordained, appointed means of our salvation. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas set sail on the first missionary journey. They arrive in the town of Antioch in Pisidia. They visited the Jewish synagogue on the day of worship. Paul was invited to deliver a sermon retelling Israel's history and then arguing that the long-awaited promise to Israel had been fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. This gospel message that Paul preached in this town made an impact, the Bible tells us, among many Jews and Jewish converts in the city, and they invited him to come back the next week. But then in Acts 13.44, when the next day arose for the synagogue to gather, the Bible says almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's exciting. Here's what happened next. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That's you and me. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here's what it says. When the Gentiles heard this, that's you. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that perplexing? We see that God planned, God purposed, God providentially made it so that ethnic Israel, by and large, would reject the gospel and by their rejection, yes, even because of it, the message of salvation would come and be received by vast numbers of Gentiles. But see, even here, We're not done. This is still not the end of God's providence. Keep reading in verse 11. We're still here. Romans 11, 11. Keep reading and you'll see that the coming of salvation to the Gentiles through Israel's own trespass and hardening has itself a redemptive role to play for who? Guess what? For Israel. God planned it this way, not only so large numbers of Gentiles would be saved, but also, Paul says, to make Israel jealous. Now, this jealousy, this provocation of Israel was mentioned not only in Acts 13, the passage I just read, but also back in chapter 10, just a chapter ago, chapter 10, verse 19, where Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 21. 
And in both those places, the jealousy of Israel is entirely negative. It's an act of judgment. But here, note that Paul sees redemption in this jealousy. It is a holy provocation. In verse 14, Paul says his aim all along is somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thereby save some of them. He wants Jews to become jealous of what they see happening to the Gentiles who have come into the salvation that Israel has forfeited, has missed out. So what are you and I to note from this? What are we to take from this? We come to verse 22, and Paul tells us, here's what he says, Gentile Christians, mostly in Rome, most commentators believe, was mostly Gentile believers, just like you and me. So this is very applicable. Here's what he says. Here's what you're supposed to take from the providence of God in Israel's story. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. The providence of God is plainly revealed in the Bible, in the story of redemption, so that you and I and everyone else will see these complementary attributes of God and respond accordingly. So let's consider first, then, the severity of God. The word severe here in Romans eleven twenty two. it appears twice in the verse, but it appears only, um, nowhere else in noun form in the New Testament. We do find its adverbial form in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 10. And there Paul says he hopes when he comes to the church at Corinth not to have to be severe in his authority that the Lord has given him. Now, any parent probably has an idea what he's talking about. Paul knows that the whole purpose in which God has made him an apostle of Jesus Christ is, as he goes on to say in that verse, to build up, not to tear down. His intent as an apostle was singular. He wanted to serve the people of God, see the people of God flourish. He wanted to bless them. But implicit in his apostolic authority was what one commentator calls the power of crushing judgment that, if necessary, Paul could use. Now, the same is true, then, of God and his authority, his providence. God's sovereign power and might His providence, his absolute authority over everyone and everything is singular in its aim and purpose. It's for peace. It's for goodness. It's for blessing. So zealous is God to show his goodness that there simply is no middle ground. For anyone who will not have it other than to be confronted with his awesome wrath. And make no mistake, when we talk about the severity of God or even the Bible's term, the wrath of God, it is every bit as incomparable 
as his mercy. When the great day of God's wrath comes, Revelation 6 says, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone will hide themselves in the caves and among the rock of the mountains and pray that they would be put out of their misery. Revelation 6, 15 to 17. Just consider Israel's own story. Consider what happened When Achan broke faith and took from the spoils of Jericho and the mighty nation fell to a little town of Ai. Consider what happened when Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. Or when Uzzah thought that he could just reach out and steady the ark of the covenant from toppling over. God's judgment on these individuals was, (laughs) to say the least, severe. So severe that those who watched were struck with panic and fear. The greatest example of God's severity toward Israel in their own history was the horrors of exile. Maybe as we hear the story of what's happening in Ukraine, we start to get a little taste. A pagan army marching on the holy city, tearing down Israel's temple, hauling away the people out of the promised land into a foreign land to be slaves. This was the kind of thing that Israel thought could never happen. You know why? If such a thing happened, this would, they assumed, make Israel's God look weak. And yet God says to the people, on the contrary, it will be a sign of my severity. Brothers and sisters, let me be frank. It is uncomfortable to think of God and his severity. But one of the reasons it's so uncomfortable is because human wrath and human severity is always mixed to some degree with selfishness. Righteous anger, sometimes we claim, I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt it. But the reason, listen, the reason why God's wrath is so terrifyingly severe is not because God is selfish, but because he is selfless. That's what makes it terrifying. It's because God is so good, so pure, so self-giving that his justice is, is so devastating and so severe. Like the sun that is so critical to the goodness of life that we enjoy on earth, God's goodness will not just thrill you, it can also kill you. This is simply not a God, Israel's God, that you want to mess around with. He's just too good, terrifyingly good to take for granted. So what should we do? How do we take note of the severity of God? Perhaps a mental picture will help. Starting in verse 17, Paul introduces an analogy. Just try to get it in your mind. The picture is of an olive tree. In the Old Testament, the olive tree is an image for Israel. One of the most striking passages is found in Jeremiah 11, and it is terrifying. 
the prophet tells the nation of Israel, the Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it. What? And its branches will be consumed. Listen to this. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Paul is now, here in Romans 11, picking up this image. The olive tree, he says, that God decreed disaster for is still alive. But just like the potter has done with his clay, it's been reshaped. So many of its natural branches have been broken off. And when you look at this olive tree, there's a bunch of, he calls them, wild olive shoots that have been grafted in. By the way, this is a strange image. Uh, Many of the commentators will point out that um, many people have have, uh, criticized Paul's image here uh, for saying that it isn't actually match what actually can happen in gardening and whatever the stuff is. Um, Arboriculture, I think it's called. I had to look that up. Had to practice saying it in the shower like 10 times. And then I was like nervous. I'm going to mispronounce it. But arboriculture, that's what it is. But here's the thing. Paul knows it's a strange image. It's supposed to be strange. This is not the kind of thing that normally happens. That's the point. Paul's making a theological point here. He's talking to Gentile Christians who have been grafted into this olive tree. Israel remains. The olive tree is still there, but it doesn't look anything like what you would expect to see. The branches of the original tree have been broken off. And there's a bunch of wild ones that have been grafted in. And and now, look what he says. And they share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. This is amazing. The olive tree we now see can no longer be properly identified by the ethnicity of its branches. But only by, what? how do you know it's an olive tree? By the sap. The nourishing root to which these branches are attached. The word that the ESV translates nourishing, modifying the word root, probably refers in the image to the sap of the the olive tree, which flows from the roots to the branches, giving life to them. In the Bible, the oily sap of of an olive tree was almost proverbial for its riches. Clearly. We know who this nourishing root is. Is there any doubt? It is Israel's Messiah. We have come to share in Israel's inheritance, not as some new aristocracy, but as the wild country cousins brought in to everybody's surprise. Now, Christian, If this is how you will see yourself, if this is the image that you could have in mind about who you are every day when you wake up, 
then the implications will be clear. Verse 20 says it like this. Do not become proud, but fear. Do not become proud, but fear. Here's how you take note of the severity of God. There's simply no room, if you are a Gentile Christian, there is simply no room for boasting over anyone else. Certainly not over any unbelieving Jew. Verse 18 says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Boy, that's important. This root is a rich root. It does not depend on you. You add nothing to the richness of the Messiah. He doesn't need you to make himself wonderful. It's the other way around. Do you get it? Do you see it? Do you have this image in your mind? Do you live your life with this reality? If you do, then what you should do is look around, and when you see these other branches, you must be amazed. These branches don't look like you. The Christian community attached to this root, the Christian community, Paul has already told us in the previous chapter, consists of anyone, listen, anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in his resurrection. So therefore, wild olive shoot, expect that the other branches may not have much anything else in common with you. You're looking for a community of people who are just like you and share everything the way you do. The Christian church is not your place. You come to the Christian church, what you should find is a lot of strange olive, wild olive shoots. I'm looking at a few. Expect that the other branches may not look anything else like you. They probably have a different skin tone. They probably listen to very different music. They probably dress a little differently. And dare I say it, they they might also vote differently than you. You and I had better check our hearts, wild olive shoots. In verses 19 and 20, Paul offers a warning to us Gentile Christians. You will say, well... Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You hear the boast? And look what Paul says. True. (laughs) True. But you had better remember how you got here. We did not come to share in the rich root of Christ any other way than through faith. In other words... God owes us absolutely nothing. We are here only by grace through faith. And in verse 21, Paul says, what happened to Israel can also happen to us. Look at it, verse 21. It's in your Bible. I'm not making this up. Otherwise, he says, you too can be cut off. You mean to tell me? We can lose our salvation. 
see it? Being cut off is not about losing salvation because that's not what happened to unbelieving Israel. That's just simply not the way the Bible frames the question. Rather, anyone who claims to be a Christian has to know that his claim in the end is meaningless if he does not continue in the faith. We are not far here from what Jesus said in the words of assurance of pardon that we said together this morning in John 15. We must abide in Christ and bear his fruit or we will be cut off. This isn't about God taking away that which he once gave you, but of you not ever getting that which at one time you thought you wanted, and that is why you should fear. We sang this morning, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." See, I've, I've got a lot of things on my Amazon wish list. I'm the easiest person to buy a gift for. If you want to buy me a little present, I can give you a link. Lots of stuff on there. But you know what's interesting about my Amazon wish list? It doesn't just have a bunch of things I want. You know what it also has? It has a bunch of things I used to want and I don't anymore. If you buy me something off of my Amazon wish list, there's a good chance that I'll probably say, ha, thanks. And you'll say, you wanted it. And I'll say, I did? Really? Yeah, my daughter's laughing. This happened recently. (laughs) Christian, let me ask you a question. What if that's what you now feel about Jesus? Take note then, the severity of God and fear. But here's what else you can do. (laughs) Indeed, here's what else you must do. You must also take note of the kindness of God. Again, we stress that the kindness of God is also evident in his severity and vice versa. Back in Romans 2, 4, Paul said that the riches of God's kindness are meant, they're purposed to lead people to repentance. Just think of it. Just think of it. God leads us to repentance, not by severity, but by kindness. So how can you take note of the kindness of God? I got two suggestions. First, in verse 22, we are told, of course, that we will be cut off like unbelieving Israel. Not if you don't do everything just right. Not if you don't behave. The threat isn't, hey, you're going to be cut off if you're not a good little Christian. Look what verse 22 says and be amazed. We will be cut off if you don't continue in what? What's it say? It is kindness. This is incredible. This is absolutely amazing. Now consider it, Christian. The way to avoid becoming proud 
is to enjoy to the fullest extent possible all the benefits that are rightly yours in Jesus Christ. Paul says in verses 13 to 14, look at, just look at this. He says, as an apostle to the Gentiles, he magnifies his ministry. You know what that literally means? He glorifies it. (laughs) He makes much of it. Again, we read this in Acts 13. We see it play out over and over again in Paul's career. In proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, he's effectively offering to them Israel's birthright. In magnifying this ministry, it's almost like he's gloating about it. He's not hiding what he's doing. He's parading it about. He's preaching it in the synagogues. As one commentator points out, no wonder Paul was often physically assaulted by the Jews. I mean, just think about it. When someone gloats like this, what do you want to do? Punch them in the face, right? Like, man, I just, that person just annoys me. And there is, to be sure, such a thing as self-righteous spirituality, that legalistic spirit that boasts about spiritual discipline in order to be seen and praised by others. Jesus warns of this. But let me also tell you, there is such a thing as a lifeless, joyless profession of faith in Christ that is nothing less than a false humility, a pride that puts you in danger of being cut off from Christ. So notice then another way to continue in God's kindness. When Paul says he magnifies his ministry in verse 13, he goes on to say that he does so in order to make his fellow Jews jealous and thereby save some of them. Even as he magnifies his mission to the Gentiles, his eye is on Israel, on his own people. (laughs) He wants to make them jealous because he hopes This will result in some of them repenting and being saved. After all, God's severity toward unbelieving Israel is not final and absolute for everyone in Israel. God, he says, verse 23, has the power to graft them in again if they repent and believe in Messiah. This is what we should want. It's what we should yearn for. It's what we should pray for. We combat our own deadly pride, not by hoarding the riches of the root for ourselves, but by sharing it with others. The richness of the root is so extreme that if you add another branch to it, it will in no way diminish your life. Like there's just a pizza with limited numbers of pieces in there, and somebody else is going to come and have a share? That's not how it works. The root is so rich, if you add another branch to it, you don't get your joy diminished. You get it multiplied. That's the reason why the Christian church has always been evangelical. Missional, if you will. By its very nature, it runs against the idolatry of individualism, which says, get everything I can because there's a limited supply. It goes totally against that. This individualism that is 
so prevalent in our own day. That's why missionary zeal is such a challenge for us, brothers and sisters. I'm with you in this. This is such a challenge for so many American Christians. We're too comfortable. The call to missions and to to evangelism is the call to continue in God's kindness. What happens in heaven when one sinner repents? Yes, the angels throw a party. Heaven goes nuts when a sinner repents. And we go, huh, that's cool. I'm just saying, I'm with you. You know why? Do you know why heaven goes nuts? Because Paul says to the Gentile believers in Rome in verse 15, look, Look what it says. If Israel's unbelief turned out to be your reconciliation, just what do you think it would mean? Were they, against all odds, to repent and be brought back into the family? Look what he says. It would be like life from the dead. And your Easter ears should pay attention. It would be like Easter Sunday all over again. Not this coming one, like the first one. Complete with all of its joys and wonders about the possibilities that have now come with the dawning of a new creation. Don't you see? The story of Israel is the story of God. And especially the story of God's kindness. In particular, the story of His grace. The God of Israel is a God who is kind both to the just And to the unjust, we must not begrudge him for his generosity to the undeserving. Rather, we should seek his heart, his missionary heart. We should desire that all would come to know his kindness because that's what our God desires. Indeed, he has given to us his power by his Holy Spirit to be his witnesses all around the world. Witnesses to the riches of his kindness in Christ Jesus for all who will believe. To be converted to Christ is to come to share in his kindness. Wow. Come on. Really? To be converted to Christ is to come to share in his kindness. I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you converted to Christ? then take note of his kindness by participating in that kindness and sharing it with others. You and I are privileged by grace to commune with Christ, the risen Lord. So do it. (laughs) Do it. Make time in your daily routines and habits to commune with the living God. Well, yeah, I have to do it for legal. No, for kindness. It is God's kindness to you. We are privileged to be members of his community. Wild olive shoots attached to the vine. So be a part of it. Show up. Thanks for coming. And serve God's people. It's God's kindness to you. We've been shown his 
hospitality. Extend it now to others. You've been reconciled to God by grace along with the rest of God's people. So now, don't stay away from others. Be drawn to them in reconciliation. Take note of God's kindness. That is how you will also fear his severity and abide in the nourishing root of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.